Deck Triathlon Show 280. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Kelly McNulty. Kelly is a PhD candidate at Northumbria University, and she has been doing research investigating the effects of the menstrual cycle and on hormonal contraceptive use on performance, recovery, and adaptation in female athletes. So in this interview, we will discuss the evidence base that exists, as well as practical recommendations for all female athletes, and as well for coaches of female athletes regarding the menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptive use, as well as some general tips and uh, advice for female athletes. Before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And in their wetsuit lineup, you have a large number of wetsuits. So you have any everything from the entry-level Maverick Comp, which is available at a very affordable price, but still has the patented arms-up technology, premium materials, and a lot of the things that make the fastest of the fast Roka wetsuits so fast. So it's a really good entry-level wetsuit that anybody getting started in triathlon would be really well-served to choose. Then we have the flagship model, the Maverick X2, and of course everything in between including also swim run wetsuits and thermal wetsuits for cold water swimming the roca wetsuits as i said all have the patented arms up technology in them so that you can retain full mobility and flexibility in your shoulders they use premium materials and a design that aims to find the perfect balance between mobility and buoyancy even small details that I don't really have talked about before on the podcast, but the ankle panels are designed with material thickness changing at the rear of the ankle to help you kick out of the suit and really, really quickly do that wetsuit removal in T1 and get onto your bike and shave some valuable seconds of your race time. Check out all of Roka's products and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. Uh, the swim trainer from Senate helps time crunch athletes get more consistency in their training and also helps people be able to do swim training period during these times when there's not always pool availability due to the ongoing pandemic. Uh, one thing that uh, I haven't talked about too much is that uh, Senate also produce training programs. This will help you get the most out of your Senate Swim Trainer experience. And importantly, one of the newest programs, the one put together uh, with the BMC Pro Triathlon team, combines training in the pool with training at home on the swim, Senate Swim Trainer, which is a very common use case for time-crunched athletes to maybe have a couple of times per week to go to the pool, but then can put together a couple more times per week of a shorter home-based Senate session. You can try that program for free for two weeks before deciding whether to enroll in the paid program or not. But check that out regardless of whether you go for the paid program. After the free trial, you will learn a lot about the training structure that you can use on your swim trainer going forward. You can get 20% off your order of a Senate Swim Trainer on the, uh, with the discount code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Kelly McNulty. Today's guest on the Triathlon Show is uh, Kelly McNulty. Uh, welcome, Kelly. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, why don't you start by introducing yourself uh, to the audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm a PhD student at Northumbria University, and my main interests are focused around the female athlete. Um, so specifically, I'm investigating the effects of the menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptive use on the likes of performance, recovery, adaptation in sportswomen. So I've always been someone that's had that sort of keen interest in human physiology and how we can optimize human performance, basically. So like that team behind the athlete. Um, so I completed an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science and then a master's in strength and conditioning as well. So they were both done at Northumbria. And as well as doing my master's, I worked sort of part time alongside that um, as an S&C coach. And that was mainly 
in golf. So that's my sort of sporting background, um, a golfer. Um, so played for lots of years and it's more for fun now, but I did compete at a higher level one time. Um, but yeah, so like most people, I got into this space, female athlete space, because it was something that had an impact on my health and my performance, particularly when I was playing um, golf. I had a lot of questions around my menstrual cycle and then hormonal contraceptive use on my performance and training. But there weren't really at that time many answers available or it wasn't something that, you know, was openly, openly discussed. And most of the time from that, we like trained um, whatever the men were doing or the boys were doing. And we took that and we then also did it um so i think that's the case in most sports so far so the majority of like training plans nutrition plans is largely based on um what's being researched or successful with male athletes and that's kind of understandable because for a long time men have competed in sport for longer than women um but recently in sport you've got that sort of massive um across the entire board that increase in the number of women participating in sport so that's both at that recreational and at an elite level um, so the more women are participating in sport and the more they want to pursue that peak performance, the better we need to be able to understand their physiology and how that might impact performance and training differently. Um, but despite this massive rise we've got, we've kind of got this sort of lack of research. Um, there's a paper that I always cite by Costello et al. 2014, and they report that for a one-year period in the top three sports science and medicine journals, only 4% of the research was done exclusively on women. So that kind of highlights that we still know very little about these sort of performance and training considerations in women um, and are largely still taking that male model of performance and training, which a lot of aspects of it do apply, um, definitely. Um, but because there are those fundamental differences between the sexes, taking that approach might not always be the optimal, if that kind of makes sense. So, yeah, I got into this area for my own personal want to know more and need to know more about my own body, but then realized that there's a massive research gap here in um all women and men need to know more about this. So, yeah, long-winded answer to start with. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, no worries. That's, that's great. And uh, just one more follow-up on that. So, you also have your own pod podcast on this topic. Is that right? Yeah, we do. Um, launching soon, actually. Hopefully, if I get everything right, um, we've recorded them all. I just need to sort them all out, and then hopefully, actually, next week, I want to get the first one out. So, okay, so it will be out by the time that this episode is is published. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what is the name of your podcast? Uh, it's called the period of the period. So we have an Instagram page and a Twitter account as well. Um, but it's all mainly focused on female athlete research and yeah, uh, yeah so it should be exciting. <laughs> okay. So, so the reason that I found you and your work is through uh, a couple of meta-analyses that you uh, were involved in and one on uh, the effect that the menstrual cycle phase has on exercise performance and, and the other one on hormonal contraceptive use. And, um, yeah, I want to get into both of those, but first, uh, just a more general question, which kind of you uh, have brought up there with like the general, the differences that, that might exist and where we might be treating women and men uh, similarly, where maybe there would be case for some differences. What, what would, if you highlight anything, it doesn't have to be related to the menstrual cycle or uh, contraceptives, but but anything in sports that where you think that there should be an awareness of differences. What, what would that be? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of like, um, obviously you've got female specific considerations that we should all be taking into account. So we've got like, so the menstrual cycle, obviously, and then hormonal contraception, because um, that's an entirely different hormonal profile. Um, but then on top of that, we've got lots of other like female specific considerations. So there's things like breast health. So around 85% of women are not wearing the correct breast support when they're doing exercise. Um, and that's been shown to cost you a mile in the marathon performance if you're not wearing the correct sport, as well as lots of other performance and health effects. Um, also for women, you've got the likes of pelvic floor health. Um, so that's commonly seen as an issue around pregnancy, but actually it's reported that up to 40% of sports women, so active girls and active women are reporting like sort of urinary incontinence. So leaking when performing, um, sport and exercise. Um, in terms of differences between men and women as well, you've got the differences in injuries. Um, so women are up to, I think it's roughly four to six times more likely to suffer from an ACL injury than men. Um, and then on top of that, you've kind of got everything like pregnancy, post-pregnancy, um, menopause, perimenopause, um, even things like how kit and equipment's designed. So there's a lot of female specific considerations that for a long time have went 
relatively under the radar. And I guess by acknowledging and considering those factors um, is absolutely essential to not only improve participation in sport for women, but also for those pursuing that sort of peak sporting performance. Um, but then I guess the other side of that as well is um, that we don't really need to sort of um, sort of throw the baby out the bathwater kind of speak. Um, the majority of sport and exercise research does benefit both men and women. Um, it's just that this sort of um, sex-specific training allow us to sort of maximise any benefits while also minimising those risks, I guess. So, yeah, in terms of there's a lot of female-specific considerations, but, yeah, yeah. hopefully that answered your question. I might yeah, have yeah, yeah of course, uh, it, it did. And um, I'll throw one in there as well, which I don't know if this is scientifically proven or anything, and I don't know if you agree, but... As, as a coach, I think that the psychology is uh, another important aspect and and definitely the coach-athlete communication is slightly different. In even It's always individually different, but there are some generalizations that, that I would say that are more often than not the case with men versus female in terms of how that communication and psychology uh, is treated in, in a coach-athlete relationship. Yeah, 100%. That's really interesting, actually, that you brought that up, because obviously there is those sex differences, obviously, between men and women. But then there's also a few um, research coming out. It's mainly sort of in the sort of lifestyle general research in the fact that this could also change across the menstrual cycle in terms of being more receptive to information at certain points or, or better at sort of conversations and emotion changes and how that affects sort of having that psychological impact. So that, that's interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start by discussing the, uh, uh, in particular, the study and the meta-analysis that you, that you did on the menstrual cycle uh, phase impact on exercise performance. So uh, can you first maybe uh, describe uh, briefly the different phases, what they're called and what they are, how it works, basically? Yeah, so I'll try and give a biology lesson on the menstrual cycle, a little one, um, because actually, generally speaking, in this area, our knowledge on it is quite poor. So actually, there's a recent study out um, by an Australian team who used a questionnaire to, which basically asked female athletes about their knowledge on the menstrual cycle and hormonal contraceptives as well. And out of a possible score of, I think off the top of my head, it was 14. The average score was five. And then I think only 8% of the athletes um, achieved a score that was greater than 10. Um, so we still have a long way to go in sort of educating women about these um, sort of female specific considerations as well and the influence they might have on their performance and training. But getting back to the menstrual cycle. So the whole point of the menstrual cycle is to allow us to get pregnant and reproduce. And that's basically what our menstrual cycle sets us up for each month. Um, and then if we don't get pregnant, those hormonal fluctuations start again. And simply put, the menstrual cycle is the time from the first day of a woman's period to the day before her next period. And the period itself refers to that shedding of the endometrial lining, and that typically lasts between two to eight days. And generally speaking, having a period is a big thumbs up in terms of everything's working correctly and is exactly how it should be. So an actual menstrual cycle or a textbook one lasts 28 days, but it's worth noting that we're definitely not all textbooks and that only around 13% of women have that 28-day cycle each and every month. So a normal cycle is considered somewhere between 21 and 35 days. So women have two predominant sex hormones. So there are many other hormones involved in our cycle, but the two main hormones are estrogen and progesterone. And across that textbook 28-day cycle, these hormones rise and fall. Um, so, for example, at the start of the cycle, so that's day one, so the start of the period, estrogen and progesterone are low. Then following the period, um, one of the hormones, estrogen, starts to increase. So usually around days five and then reaches its peak just prior to ovulation. So in that textbook example, it's around days 11, 12. And then ovulation refers to that middle of our cycle. Um, so it would be day 14 in this textbook example, although, again, that varies really greatly um, both within and then between women. And then after ovulation, um, estrogen begins to drop off and then has a secondary peak, although this peaks slightly lower than its original peak. And that's around days 20, 23. And then around this time, progesterone, which also started to increase, reached its peak. And throw my hands around here, but I know they won't be able to see that. Um, but yeah, so following that, um, if fertilization doesn't occur, they both drop off and the cycle begins again. So basically what it means is you have these 
three main phases where women are at their most physiological difference. So you've got the start of the cycle, um, estrogen, progesterone are low. Then you've got, and that's normally referred to as the early follicular phase within the, within the research. And then you've got estrogen reaching its peak while progesterone's low around the middle of the cycle. So we normally call that the late follicular ovulatory phase. And then finally, estrogen has its secondary peak and progesterone peaks also in that last um, third of the cycle and that's what we refer to as the mid luteal phase and then all of that information I've just said is a typical menstrual cycle but it's also important to highlight early on that every woman is different and there's a load of variation between women and menstrual cycles and then just to complicate that even further there's a lot of variation within the same woman across her life so yeah a lot going on <laughs> yeah Absolutely. So, so then uh, the the objective of your uh, of your work with that meta analysis was to to find out if there is any consensus in the research with regard to whether there are performance effects of depending on which phase you are in, and um, and and basically before going into what you what you found and how you how you did this work, uh, was there any sort of either research or even kind of in the field anecdotal consensus or beliefs around what might happen in different phases in terms of exercise performance? Yeah, so um, I guess to start with, I can kind of explain why these hormones might affect performance and training in the first place. So although the primary function, like what I mentioned, is to um, for is for these hormones is reproduction because we have these hormone receptors so all over our body so we have them in our muscles and our brains and pretty much everywhere so the fluctuations in estrogen progesterone influence many other of our physiological systems so such as our cardiovascular system or respiratory system metabolic system neuromuscular system so which that could all then subsequently affect performance and training. Um, so, for example, estrogen is thought to have that anabolic effect on skeletal muscle, and it's been shown to have antioxidant and membrane-stabilizing properties, um, which then might offer some protection against the likes of muscle damage, reduced inflammatory responses. You've also got the neuroexcitatory effects, um, whereby estrogen um, reduces inhibition and increases voluntary activation. Um, it's been shown to play a role in substrate metabolism through increased muscle glycogen stores and increased fat utilization. Uh, fat utilization. Um, it's also thought to influence our mood, like what we talked about, in terms of increased confidence, uh, motivation, energy. And then in contrast to that, progesterone almost has anti-estrogen effects, um, but also a whole range of its own effects, such as the rise in basal body temperature. Um, although this is um, only about 0.5 of a degree, um, it's still quite a lot for the body. And then sort of when you add all of that up in theory, um, it's possible that changes in exercise performance might be observed due to those different hormonal profiles across the cycle. Um, but if we look specifically at the performance-based research, um, although there's actually not not a lot of it, it's also very so. So, so if we um, if we just uh, go at and look at the theoretical, what might happen based on that knowledge, yeah. that early phase where uh, where estrogen is high and the progesterone is low, then you might have some good positive effects and uh, conversely when you have estrogen is low and progesterone is low um yeah not not any additional positive effects at least and then in uh, the latter phase when both hormones are kind of high then you would have what would the net effect of that be since you have the positive and the inhibitory effects of progesterone on estrogen yeah so normally estrogen's effects are sort of unregulated and that it's not um, they're not typically sort of shown as much. Um, it's a bit of a mixed bag, like I say. So you've got research that has shown early follicular changes, ovulatory changes, late follicular changes. And then when you put that together, um, obviously it depends what sport and whether it's strength, endurance, et cetera, um, whether what's going on. But when you put that all together, there's also studies that have shown absolutely no effect whatsoever. Um, so there's that real lack of consensus in that does exercise performance um, change across the menstrual cycle or not? And then because of that, there's sort of no evidence-based guidelines for sportswomen on managing their performance or, or even their training across their cycle. Um, so that was basically the rationale behind the review in that we do have some research and some idea of what might be happening, um, but there's nothing there that actually shows it the magnitude and the direction of this effect really mm. so so let's go into more detail on how you conducted this meta-analysis 
Yeah, so um, this was basically a review with meta-analysis, like you said, and it looked at the effects of menstrual cycle phase on exercise performance. So performance tests like time trial performance, and we had some VO2 max tests, and we had jump measures, strength measures. Um, and this was all in numenorheic women, so naturally menstruating women. And also as part of that, we assessed the quality of this research um, using specific quality assurance tools, basically. So I'll try not to bore entirely with all the method details um, but basically once we had that question we searched um, these four databases for all the published um, experimental studies looking at this and then um, from that we actually got I think it was over 5,000 articles and then basically we took them and we got um, assessed them all for the inclusion exclusion criteria we set up so this was things like um, making sure our participants were between the ages of 18 and 40, eumenorrheic so they were naturally menstruating in and not taking any hormonal contraception um obviously the studies had to have some measure of exercise test performance so that was like what i mentioned um we defined it as total work done time to completion time to exhaustion measures like that and then these had to be measured in two or more defined menstrual cycle phases and then basically once we got down to those included studies we could then extract all of that data and then perform that quality assessment on it as well and the quality tool was basically developed um and slightly adapted for this study um, and it basically looked at all the usual measures like um, experimental design power the control of certain variables reliability ability of the techniques used but then also there was questions that were specific to menstrual cycle research um, such as making sure the participants were eumenorrheic, hadn't taken a hormonal contraception um, or had stopped taking it for at least three months before, um, randomised the phases. And then basically the two main big questions we asked was, did they use ovulation detection kits and um, did they then confirm menstrual cycle phase with bloods? So it would seem straightforward in menstrual cycle research just to basically count those cycle days that I mentioned before um, and basically say your participants in that phase and that's exactly what her hormones are doing. But like what I mentioned, it, there's this massive variation. So counting of the days isn't basically reliable enough. And then that's where we instead recommend that three-stage method of counting, but also using ovulation kits and then backing it up with the bloods. Um, so, yeah, once we've basically done all of that, um, we then could run our analysis, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh, just just a note there so nobody gets confused when you mentioned that power is part of the quality assessment that refers to, st to st statistical power and not bike power or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> just yeah. To be clear. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so great. So so then, um, what were the, the findings once you ran the the analysis on all of this? Yeah, so we found um, seventy eight studies that were relevant, and that was data from over a um, thousand participants. And the results overall indicated that exercise performance, so that strength and endurance, might be reduced by a trivial amount during the early folliculate phase of the menstrual cycle compared to all other phases. So that basically means that exercise performance might be slightly reduced in some sports women when estrogen and progesterone concentrations are at their lowest, so usually days one to five of the menstrual cycle. Um, but also in addition to that trivial effect, um, results from um, also showed a relatively large um, between-study variance, which indicated that things like research design, participant characteristics, and um, type of performance measured all were influenced in this effect. And uh, it's also important to understand that a large proportion of these studies, so um, 42%, I'm going to say off the top of my head, it's a while since I've looked at the review, um, were classified as low, and 8% of the studies were only um, high quality. And that was basically because of those poor menstrual cycle and um, specific research methods um, in terms of most studies weren't using that three-step method um, that I mentioned before. So basically, when you add um, the small size of the effect, the poor quality of the research and the differences between, between the studies, general guidelines on exercise performance across the menstrual cycle couldn't be formed and then that's where instead we recommend that those working with female athletes take a personalized approach whereby they track and consider the menstrual cycle and be aware of the times when it um, performance might be reduced so that early follicular phase or enhanced so all other menstrual cycle phases but they shouldn't assume that those results sort of apply to them. Basically. Yeah, and and a follow up on that. So you mentioned that, that due to the large variation in uh, when the exact 
hormone fluctuations occur. Um, does that mean, can you still, like, can you rely on your own cycle being fairly consistent in those hormonal fluctuations or do you yourself as an athlete, if you're a female athlete, need to actually uh, get the ovulation test kit and the blood samples and all the things you mentioned to, to be able to really like track that properly? Yeah. So in terms of tracking your cycle for athletes, um, a great question, actually. So you don't need to, I mean, you can, if you want to delve into all of those details in terms of tracking ovulation and looking for that rise in basal body temperature, or you can also track things like cervical fluid. So that changes across the cycle as well. You can also, if you really want to use ovulation detection kits, you can also use them. Um, but you can also track the menstrual cycle quite simply, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on a little bit as well. Yeah. Well, let's get, get onto that uh, perhaps right, yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah, so um, basically, because we recommended that individual approach, the things that you can look for is basically, I would encourage you to go away and track your own unique cycle. So learn what symptoms you experience, how you train, perform, recover at certain points in your cycle. And that requires, like what we said, tracking the cycle. So you can track it very simply using um, pen and paper Or you can even use um, apps on your phone. So there's some apps that have been specifically designed for female athletes like Fit On Woman. Um, but as long as you can easily record your data and look back at it whenever you need, it doesn't matter how you choose to track your cycle. The key is to use whatever method um, suits you best and whichever method you can stick to because consistency is almost key here. And then also on that point, it's important to track for at least three months before you start to pick up and use your cycle patterns and um, just so you're making sure that that data is effective really. And then sort of with that in mind, some of the things that we mentioned to track, um, again, you don't have to overcomplicate this, but you have to be sure that you're recording useful information. Otherwise, it's just a bit of a waste of time, really. So a great place to start is to record when your period starts and when your period ends, including any um, blood flow heaviness at that time and any symptoms at that time. To then add to that, you can then start tracking your symptoms across your entire cycle. So these could be things like um, cramps, headaches, breast pain, digestive upsets, nausea. And then on top of that, you might want to add another layer so you can add add um, physical and emotional changes to the data, such as um, any sleep changes across your cycle, any energy changes across your cycle, as well as changes in diet, appetite. Um, it could be even things like changes in mood and, and general stress levels. And then you can also, importantly, the other thing we all want to know is um, sporting performance and training. So you can add on certain days, for instance, did you train well today? or compared to any other part of your cycle, or did you recover better from training today rather than what you would normally do? Um, so, and then like what we said, you can take that that one step further and look at when ovulation occurs using the methods we just mentioned. Um, so once you've collected all that data, um, it's no good just collecting it. Obviously, we have to then do something with it. So that's when you can start to use it to detect patterns in your cycle and see if there's a link between your performance and training. So by tracking your cycle, you basically allow yourself to develop these bespoke athlete guidelines and then using your knowledge and understanding you can then start to determine what bits of the research might apply to you and which don't and then from there you can begin to sort of slightly adjust things tweak things um, if it's needed which in a lot of athletes it might not always be but then ultimately that allows us to maximize or manage performance of training depending on where you are in your cycle yeah that's that's a really great comprehensive answer and and i guess that based on your research findings maybe like a, a place to keep an extra eye on in terms of whether there is an effect on performance would be that early flicker phase yeah. because that's what seemed to uh, to have some sort of effect at least uh, based on based on your meta-analysis yeah definitely so we saw basically it was a trivial effect so it was very very tiny but again for a lot of women that might actually be very very large or it could be non-existent at all so yeah, yeah if If you're working on that case by case basis, you, you, that's the best way you can work really as any athlete um, on your individual data rather than any sort of group data. So, yeah. What What about uh, is it possible still that on the, on an individual level that there might be effects in other phases of the cycle, whether they're yeah. be positive or negative? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Um, 
again, around ovulation, a lot of women report that sort of massive motivation to train, but also there's some interesting research coming out looking at strength performance and that first sort of follicular phase. So you might be someone that notices changes across your entire cycle. Again, it just comes down to what individually happening so they could be positive or negative there's a lot that could be actually going on but basically if you tune into your own individual experiences and then that's how you should be informing any training or any performance adjustments basically so we're all incredibly variable and then don't always fit into sort of neat patterns that we can then get those actionable insights from um but yeah i think for a long time that variability within the menstrual cycle has almost been underappreciated within the research um, but yeah, the menstrual cycle is so unique. And then also on top of that, what I mentioned earlier is that it changes so much across the lifespan. Um, so yeah, I think we need to get comfortable and recognize that um, when we're working with women, that there's never going to be a certain universal blueprint or a guideline um, that we can use for all women. It's more about, um, yeah, figuring yeah. out what works best for you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you have any idea whether it's anecdotal data um, just based on talking to people uh how many women would have basically no no impact at all throughout the cycle yeah so quite a lot yeah um actually just chatting so yeah there's loads of women that do notice an effect but then equally on the other hand it's like the research you've got about 50% saying there is an effect 50% saying there's no effect sort of thing mm-hmm. um so yeah, lots of women don't notice an effect. And I guess it's important for them to, to not overemphasize these menstrual cycle effects in them. Um, it's obviously there's no risk in tracking the menstrual cycle in terms of um like risk reward. Um, you can go away, you can track your cycle, see if you notice any of these changes. And then if you don't, you don't ha- you can just stop it. You don't you don't have to carry on. Um, but then, yeah, I guess don't force yourself to fit a certain narrative. And obviously, I think it also works a bit like, um, and trying to think of a good way, but if you start learning things um, more about, say, sleep, then once you know more, um, your mind's thinking, oh, too much when you go to sleep, and then you don't miss sleep sort of thing. So I'm trying to describe that a bit better. But in terms of that, you just have to be really wary of if you start feeding your athlete menstrual cycle information, and then she starts overthinking it as well. So yeah, there's a, there's a balance there, really. Yeah, yeah, you, you should have a good signal to noise ratio if you are <laughs> to make any sort of decisions based on the data collection. And yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned there that, well, you can track however you you want to, whether it's pen and paper or an app. But uh, I think that probably these days, a lot of people do like to use apps if there are good apps available. So uh, do you know of any that, that you would recommend? Yeah. So like what I mentioned before, um, Fit Our Woman is an app that's been specifically designed for female athletes. And it's great because you can track um, menstrual cycle, any symptoms, training, diet. It also gives you um, some nice information on like different cycle tips and training and um, performance and nutrition. Um, There's also an app called Wild AI, I believe. Um, I don't know too much about that one, actually. Oh, I haven't really seen its like interface um, mm. as much. Um, but then I guess one thing I would probably say about um, apps in general um, to track the menstrual cycle is um, firstly check that your data isn't almost being like sold on. Um, so there are some apps like Clue, um, which are brilliant because they use their data to inform research, which is quite interesting. But then also... Um, you have to also be aware of if they're really in tune with your cycle. So often the advice giving in these apps, which is great, is often generic and it might not suit you personally. So it comes down to that individuality again. And often these apps go with the majority. And also remember that there's not much research here. Um, so the research that the apps are based off is, is constantly changing. And like what I meant, we need, as I said before, we need a lot more high quality research. But yeah, I guess I would just sort of be cautious using an app. Um, but I do love the idea of using an app to sort of track your cycle and train around it. Yeah. It sounds like basically if, if you want to use an app, you should find one that functions as a as a tracking tool and only that and not trying to be too smart, but one where you can view your own data and and maybe easily see, I don't know, through some smart color coding yeah. if there if you can find any correlations between when you're performing well and uh, the phase of cycle that you're in, but without that generic uh, advice that might not be correct for the individual. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And what's also great about the Fit Our Woman app is you can actually switch it all off. So you just have the face that you put your own data on. So you can switch all the training, performance, nutrition guidelines off, um, which might be distracting you, but also then you can pop them on and have a read and learn more, which I think is great as well about that. Yeah, perfect. Uh, final question on this topic. Uh, what would you like to see from future research in this area? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I guess like what we highlighted before is that the majority of research from that systematic review highlighted that it was actually low quality. So I think we need that big influx of high quality menstrual cycle research. Um, so the research that uses the ovulation detection kits, the blood samples, so those really high quality menstrual cycle methods, um, just so we can then really sort of tease out those true effects. Um, having said that, um, being a researcher in the area of experience, the difficulty of things um, like that, so recruitment and also the expense. So we need a lot more funding here for this research. Um, so as long as I guess um, researchers are aware that they're doing the best possible method that their budget or their facilities or their time allows, and then they recognize them limitations. And that's the kind of the best we can do at the minute in terms of menstrual cycle research. And what's quite funny is we sort of banged that quality drum quite a lot in these two reviews. Um, but then my next study I had planned, well, we planned to utilize and we were using all of these high quality methods. Um, and then COVID arrived and our labs got shut down. So So now we're having to adapt to a home-based study. And because of that, we can't get in to take bloods, et cetera. So we're using the best possible method that we can. But again, that's all we can really do right now. So, um, yeah, but in terms of looking to where the research could go, I think a study that really looks at the sort of training. So if you train more in one phase compared to another phase, and there's four studies out there at the minute looking at this across the menstrual cycle, um, which have shown a slight effect, but I think definitely they were all in um, strength performance though. But yeah, I think there could be some exciting research there in terms of training across the menstrual cycle. Mm. Great answer. And it's really interesting what COVID has done to sport science and, and science in general in terms of how we can conduct studies. Um, and I mean, definitely there are some disadvantages with not having access to facilities and so on, but also it may be uh, an opportunity to do some new creative studies with bigger sample sizes and uh, greater statistical power and so on. So so different type of quality in, in that sense. Yeah. yeah, 100%. All right, so so let's uh, discuss the the other meta-analysis, uh, the one on uh, hormonal contraceptive use. And um, so, uh, again, if you can start with the background of how that might theoretically impact, well, how, how does that impact the hormonal fluctuations? Because that's what it does, I gather. And then how might that theoretically impact uh, exercise performance? Yeah, so the menstrual cycle also gets that whole little bit more confusing because it's open to that external variation so like you say hormonal contraceptive use and it's another important aspect to consider when researching or working with women um, and this is because a recent audit of female athletes um, around half of the population surveyed were using some kind of hormonal contraception so whilst we want to continue that research and understanding of the menstrual cycle we need to also be able to cater for that other half of sportswomen as well. So hormonal contraception is primarily designed to prevent an unplanned pregnancy, but they are also used by female athletes um, to manipulate their menstrual cycle so that they can basically control or eliminate entirely their bleeding. So for instance, some sportswomen find that having um, periods are inconvenient and might be an extra concern for their training or their competition. And then also some ex um, experience some really bad side effects of the menstrual cycle, which could then affect their performance and training as well. So um, there are lots of different types of hormonal contraception. Um, so I won't, oh, so you've got the combined contraceptive pill, progesterone only pill, implant contraceptive patch, vaginal rings, injections, hormonal coils. So there's like, I could be chatting here um, all day about these different types, but generally speaking, within the research and within female athletes, the combined monophasic or contraceptive pill is the most common in female athletes. Um, so yeah, I'll focus on that sort of physiology now. And that's basically what our review looked at. So this type of oral contraceptive was designed to mimic that 28-day menstrual cycle by having 21 pill-taking days, followed by seven pill-free days. And put simply, that alters the physiology of a woman in two main ways. So 
one by suppressing the natural hormones that we produce throughout the pill cycle and then two by providing us with an artificial estrogen and progestin during those 21 pill taking days and instead of having um, your natural hormones rise and fall as i described before the men- uh, throughout the menstrual cycle your natural levels of estrogen and progesterone are downregulated so they're almost like a flat line throughout those 21 pill taking days and then in the seven pill free days you see a small recovery of this endogenous estrogen and progesterone but then these go right back down again to low levels when you start taking your pill again And then in addition to that, every time an athlete consumes her pill on those 21 pill-taking days, she's putting some artificial estrogen and progestin into her body, which then peaks within one hour and then drops off. So you kind of got that's like moving up and down and builds up over time until those pill-free days um, when you don't get that daily spike in those um, artificial hormones. And then during those seven pill-free days, women experience a withdrawal bleed. It's important to also note that that bears no physiological resemblance to a natural period. Um, So, yeah, that's something to keep in mind as well. So, like you say, that altered hormonal profile is significantly different from the menstrual cycle and therefore could um, influence exercise performance in an entirely different way. And then also the hormonal profile between those pill-taking days and those pill-free days is also different and then could also influence performance itself. So despite the amount of women on an oral contraceptive um, and the potential effects that this might have on performance and training, we still know very little about it. And again, lots of conflict and findings and that basically set us up for that second um, meta-analysis. Mm. So so based on the background knowledge of the first meta-analysis that we discussed already and that there was a trivial effect for uh, lower performance in uh, the early follicular phase when both estrogen and progesterone are, are low, we could maybe make a hypothesis that on those pill-taking days, because you have that flat line of those two hormones that that on those days performance might also be lower which is quite significant and would that be a reasonable hypothesis or am i off base there no no 100 so um the hormonal profile of a or contraceptive pill user is very similar to the hormonal profile that we see in that early follicular phase as well and um, slightly lower but at its peak that's basically it's just getting to those normal um that early follicular phase so yeah you you're 100 right with that <laughs> right so so then uh, if you describe again what you did uh, yeah. in terms of the methods uh, briefly and then what you found yeah so um basically the methods are very sort of similar um except this time we found and we analyzed all of the previous studies which looked at firstly the effects of um or contraceptive use versus naturally menstruating women and then secondly we looked at the effects of oral contraceptive pill-taking days versus oral contraceptive pill-free days. And again, as part of that, we also examined the quality of the studies, except this tool now was slightly altered um, to fit this hormonal contraceptive um, research instead. So uh, basically from that, we could then again um, start um, extracting all the data and then putting it all together into analysis. And what we found was Um, 42 relevant studies from over 500 participants and the results generally indicated a trivial performance effect with oral contraceptive use with superior performance observed in those naturally menstruating women compared to those taking the oral contraceptive pill so exactly like you said before so that means um, some but not all women who take an oral contraceptive pill might have slightly poorer performance than those who don't take the pill And then in addition to that, or within group analysis, um, indicated that exercise performance was relatively consistent across the um, oral contraceptive pill cycle, meaning that performance did not change between these oral contraceptive pill-taking days and the oral contraceptive pill-free days. And then on top of that, um, a large proportion, again, of these studies, so 83% were graded as moderate, lower, very low in quality, so only 17% were achieving that um high quality status this time as well mm. that, that's quite interesting even though the effect was uh was small uh, if there is an effect there then it's quite interesting because as you mentioned there are a lot of female athletes that m- may be taking uh, an oral contraceptive pill for actually for the sake of their sport to be able to do that uh, more conveniently or better or uh and and then it might actually potentially 
slightly reduce their performance. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right. So again, what we recommended from that was to take a individualized approach to oral contraceptive use. So focus on each athlete's response to their oral contraceptive, as again, some athletes will be affected and others won't be affected at all. But also within that, we need to consider other factors such as their reason for using the oral contraceptive in the first place. Um, for example, the consequences of an unplanned pregnancy might be far greater than that trivial effect on performance that we observed in the study. But also on top of that, you should also consider their experience of the naturally occurring menstrual cycle. So lots of women experience substantial menstrual symptoms like cramps, breast pain, heavy menstrual bleeding. And then for those individuals going on an oral contraceptive, the benefits um, might outweigh that trivial effect that we've seen in, in the study. So all of those factors kind of needed to be um, added up and put together. Um, finally, then, in terms of if you're on the oral contraceptive and you're worried about performance between those pill-taking days and those pill-free days, we've, we've basically shown that that's not something that you need to worry. But yeah, I guess um, in terms of naturally menstruating and oral contraceptive, we can't really say one's better or one's worse sort of thing. It's just, again, um, frustratingly down to the individual, but also, yeah, that's the best approach anyway. Yeah. So, so if you... Uh... Well, I, I mean, I guess in many cases, it might be quite evident based on several factors that you mentioned, which way is the right way to go. But if if we have an athlete that kind of doesn't really know what is the best for them, would you recommend just uh, trying both methods for, I don't know, a couple of months, three months, as you mentioned before, and logging how they feel and stuff? Is, is that how you could go, would go about it? Yeah. So in terms of um, hormonal contraceptive use, you can also track this. Um, so definitely... Um, in an ideal world, you would be tracking before. And then when you go on um, hormonal contraceptive, continue to track and notice if there's any differences. Um, obviously, that might not be possible. And I wouldn't advise going off your hormonal contraception if you're using that for pregnancy reasons um, in terms of seeing if your performance changes, basically. So, yeah, you can definitely track hormonal contraceptive use using the methods that I mentioned before and tracking very similar things. And that's basically, and then you can use that data to then advocate for yourself, whether you want to try a different type of hormonal contraception or you want to come off and see how your performance is then. So, yeah. Mm. And uh, one question about uh, oral contraceptive pills uh, in particular is, uh, are those kind of, clean sports cleared or Informed, uh, VADA regulated some or like VADA approved, I mean, uh, or is there any risk in terms of doping violations with, with that? Yes, yeah, so actually that's quite interesting because I think it was in the 1980s, I'm going to say 1987, but I might, might be off there, but basically the IOC banned um, the use of an oral contraceptive that contained noroethendrone. I hope I said that right. So that's a synthetic progestin with anabolic, um, estrogenic and those androgenic properties. And then at the time, this was because some laboratories couldn't distinguish between the properties of the oral contraceptive pill and um, going to pronounce this wrong as well, and nandrolone, um, which is a common anabolic androgenic steroid. So that ban was actually overturned within, I think it was five or six months afterwards. But I don't believe there's anything today in terms of sort of risk for clean sport or right. other regulation. Yeah. And uh, so I have heard, I seem to recall, although I may be wrong here, uh, stories about uh, coaches that have uh, later uh, gotten doping bans or doping violation uh, penalties that have, uh, well, basically non scrupulous coaches that have uh, advocated for their female athletes to get on certain uh, certain OCPs. And maybe this refers to actually those kinds of OCPs that you mentioned with which the IOC initially uh, banned. Or, or is there any other reason that they might be, be doing that? Yeah, so they've normally been theorized to have that sort of androgenic component. Um, but basically, we said in our review that we kind of sort of said no to that basically yeah. and that there's no evidence for for that um because obviously we had that sort of down regulation of performance um to be honest i could hold my hands up and say i'm not really sure um in terms of um what coaches you know if that's what the reason why they recommended it um but there is sort of different um like sort of hormonal profiles that come out of it and obviously some of the hormonal profiles have been shown to reduce performance um but some of them have shown no effect so yeah i guess it's just down to that individual level again yeah. 
I, I've recently, I've re- recently uh, read the book uh, about the Nike Oregon project doping scandals, and that's why I'm yeah. very interested in this. Although that, this particular thing wasn't part of that, but I did, that just yeah, reading yeah. that book made me recall that I have read about some other instances where uh, where this yeah. was used, but probably just yeah misinformed way to try to cheat the system. <laughs> I, I would guess. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's interesting yeah. what you said though. So uh, one. One, two more questions. Uh, so this one, uh, I, don't, I will be quite interested to hear your answer in. Uh, on a scale from very much disagree to very much agree, how would you answer the question, optimal endurance training is the same for male and female athletes? And then explain your answer, obviously. Yeah, so I guess what I kind of touched on before in that training in any sport as long for a long time in that we do the same things as the men. So our guidelines are basically what the men do, we basically apply of being largely transferred to women. And I guess for a long time that hasn't really been questioned in that no one really sort of flagged it or made it an issue. But now we know more about sex differences. So we have differences in anatomy, biomechanics, physiology, endocrinologically, et cetera, between the sexes. So I guess it would almost be naive to assume that all research in men um, and what men do in their sort of endurance training could then be directly applied to women and therefore women will benefit from these sex-specific training guidelines and considering their physiology so things like the menstrual cycle hormonal contraceptive use but then there's also a another whole host of things like what I mentioned before in terms of um, breast health pelvic floor health um, injuries in women, pregnancy, post-pregnancy, menopause, um, kit equipment. So I guess like what I say for a long time, those have not really been considered, um, went relatively under the radar, but they are sort of massive, potentially massive performance opportunities in sport. And in sport, rarely we're looking for those marginal gains in training or performance, whereas actually this could be an opportunity to get a really big impact for female athletes. But then I'd say if where I sat on that spectrum was probably more towards that it's not quite the same for males and females, but then a giant sort of caveat to that is that yeah, what I said before is that we really don't need to throw away um, all of this sport and exercise science research and start again for women. And the majority will benefit, but everyone. But then again, that sort of sex-specific training um, allows us to really sort of maximize benefits and reduce risks. So yeah, I guess there's no reason to sort of forget basic science and basic training it's just more adding a, a different layer or different perspective on it as well yeah that well, answers the question <laughs> no that, that's yeah that's a great answer um is there anything that i should have asked about any of these topics uh or related to them that i didn't anything that you can think of that would be good to add um i guess sort of the main thing in terms of endurance performance is that for a long time, it's been common in this space that are normal in this space or seen as normal to lose your period and um, because of the likes of overtraining or relative energy deficiency um, syndrome in sport. Um, but then I guess, although common, it's not sort of normal and it doesn't have to be part of your normal training. So definitely, if this is you, then definitely speak to someone about it and get the help you need. And then also in, on the topic of that, um, hormonal contraception can mask any of these issues. So things like overtraining reds. So if you notice other, um, you can be on the lookout for other symptoms such as um, fatigue, any reoccurring injuries or just general poor performance. So yeah, if, if you're on hormonal contraception and notice those, then maybe get help as well. So yeah. Mm. Reds, uh, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned reds because that's an example of something that is uh, that has gone the other way rather than going from all the research is done in males and yeah, we yeah. apply a blanket formula to everybody. But REDS actually started out as just a female-specific female athlete triad and, and now yeah. REDS is what we what we call it and know that it's probably pretty much almost as prevalent in males as in as in females. So that's quite interesting. And, and I have a, an interview with Margaret Mountjoy who did the IOC consensus statement on REDS yeah. So for listeners interested in that, that that's definitely worth uh, worth listening to. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that is interesting. Like you say, it was female athlete triad and then has went that entirely different way to incorporate the men this time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, uh, let's finish off with the rapid fire questions. And uh, these ones are short and sharp. One sentence to answer <laughs> these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource 
related to uh, endurance sports, or it can also be any your your field of expertise or your sport of choice, golf. Yeah, no, so I guess it's not entirely endurance performance, but I love um, Steve Ingham's How to Support Champion book. I guess that was really pivotal for me um, at my university degree. So 100% would recommend that one. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, that's probably great. I haven't read that, but I know his his work, and uh, and I can imagine that it's really great. Uh, who's somebody that has inspired you? Um, I would probably say Jessica Ennis Hill. I guess watching her career, it's just been incredible, and she seems like someone you would just want on your team or as your best pal, someone to run ideas by. <laughs> yeah, and finally, what's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, so. I was thinking about this and I don't know where it's come from originally, but we say something in my family of set your stall out the night before. And I guess what it means is that just be planned or prepared. Um, so I do try to be as organized as I can for tomorrow. And then that could be just making a list of things that needs to be done um, daily just really helps me. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, finally, where can the listeners uh, find you? Are you active on social media and uh, maybe ResearchGate or any other profiles of that nature that you want to mention? And, and then, of course, uh, the name of your podcast again, so people can check that out. Yeah, 100%. So I am on ResearchGate. I'm also on Twitter as um, at Kelly McNally, I think it is. But a lot of the sort of female athlete stuff that I specifically talk about is on um uh, period of the period so we have a website but we also have um a twitter and instagram i think they're both period of the period i'm not <laughs> i should probably know that um but yeah hopefully as well the podcast will be out by the time then yeah yeah and and we'll find all those links and put yeah. them in the show notes <laughs> brilliant thank you great all right thank you so much kelly for taking the time uh, and uh thank you for conducting two really great meta-analyses uh, on really important topics. Uh, that's uh, th that's really well done uh, yeah, to, to do that. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview. I think uh, it's uh, really great work that Kelly and her colleagues have been doing put, to put these meta-analyses together and uh, give us a really clear piece of what evidence we have and what evidence we don't have, uh, but also there and Kelly's, uh, Kelly's pursuit in getting out practical information as well with things like her podcast and, uh, and other projects appearing on a podcast as a guest as well. So kudos to Kelly for that. Uh, you do a really great job and keep doing that. Really appreciate the time. I will link to everything we mentioned in the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com as usual, including Kelly's website and podcast, Twitter, ResearchGate, and uh, the papers that we discussed, which are called, uh, first, the effects of menstrual cycle phase on exercise performance in human rake women, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And then the second one being the effects of oral contraceptives on exercise performance in women, a systematic review and meta-analysis. As well as uh, a couple of related episodes that we've done, uh, REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports, with Margot Mountjoy, which was episode 233. And back in episode 33, Training During and After Pregnancy with Jocelyn McCauley. On Thursday, we have another TTS Thursday episode coming out. And then next Monday, I interview researcher and physiologist Paolo Puccinelli on the topic of a study he conducted of the best finding the best markers of performance in amateur triathletes. So stay tuned for that. If you are looking for training plans or coaching services, go check out scientifictriathlon.com. I think that we have some really, really great option for any triathletes, whether you're a beginner or a seasoned veteran or budding pro athlete to consider. Also, regarding coaching, I have on the last couple of TTS Thursdays announced that we are looking to add a new coach to the team as we are running out of slots, which is a great thing, but also means that there's work to be done now to, to add another coach. And uh, by the time you hear this, uh, we, may, we have already interviewed a lot of candidates and may be close to selecting one, but there is probably still time if you hurry up to get your application in. And uh, regardless of uh, if you get it in in time or not, please send it over. Uh, I'm always open to discussing with new coaches because at some point in the future, we'll probably need to add another coach to the team anyway. So, so get in touch now and we can 
build build a rapport and uh, and then perhaps even in the future if you don't happen to listen to this episode right as it comes out and you still have time to to get that application in it's still valuable for the future to do so big thanks finally to our sponsors roca that you can find on roca.com check out roca's wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20 percent off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts and thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. Use the swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina. Even when you don't have time to go to the pool or pools are closed, you can keep up your consistency. The trainer is inflatable and stores really nice and small when deflated. Get 20% off your order of the swim trainer with a promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TDS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft fun.